pastors or elders. So the criticism gets spread around, you know. When you, when you have something to say about me, I just say, hey, it's the elders' fault. No, I don't, I don't say that. They, they, no, none of us say that. The answer to the question, though, is that leaders are accountable. Church leaders are accountable to the members. And even more so, are they accountable to God? I think that's one of the things that we forget about all of the structures of authority and submission that are laid out in Scripture. Father, husband being the head of the, uh, of the marriage, uh, father being the head of the household, um, church leaders being the head of the church, government officials being the head of the nation, uh, that, that those who are in authority are going to give a far greater account than those who are not in authority. And you say, well, that doesn't do me any good. Well, if you truly believe that all of this is real that we talk about week in and week out and that we base our lives on, God says those who are in authority have a higher accountability. And everything will even out someday. We forget about that. It's just, that's not fair. I need to be able to do this and that. So, uh, leaders are accountable both to the members and to God. Look, Lord Acton's dictum, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. If leaders are not held to account, then anything can happen. (laughs) And a lot of times it's not good. It is no light thing, though, to openly criticize the leaders that God has ordained to lead the church. He set up structures for us to air our differences with one another. Uh, And in fact, 1 Timothy says, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless there is more than one witness. Same as the Old Testament law. But it's no light thing to criticize those who are in leadership of the church. I hope that we strike a good balance here. I can't tell you how many times the elders think about things and they say, Well, maybe... Not just yet. We want to make sure that this is communicated properly. We don't want to ever come across uh, as overstepping our authority. Since I am the teaching elder for which 1 Timothy makes provision, you may tend to think of me as the pastor. But again, I'm only one of seven pastors who are in the place of responsibility that God has assigned to them because of the unique gifting and calling of the Lord, part of which is the ability to teach. There are lots of other people in our church who are exceptional teachers. Those who are not elders that teach. Um, And and for this time, though, in our church, these seven elders are the leaders that God has assigned to serve the body known as Grace Community Church. You'll be hearing from a lot of them in these coming weeks in our series, A Place in the Family. Today we're talking about family guidelines and the role of leaders. And we're taking our cues from Ephesians 4, which contains one of the most important texts in the New Testament about the structure and function of the New Testament church. It's talking about structure and function in a local church. And in fact, almost the great majority of things that you read about in the New Testament with regard to the church have to do with the local church. Uh, We're only going to look closely at a part of this text, but we're going to read a larger portion for context. And this text is, again, so vital to covenant community life 
that we're going to be in it for two weeks. This week, we're thinking about the role of the leaders, and then next week, family member responsibilities. So let's get started. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, if you would please stand for the reading of Scripture. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, this is the Apostle Paul writing, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Is there one word that sticks out to you here in this uh, section? One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives And he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Before, let me just stop because we're not addressing this. King James, I think this is translated, he descended into hell. And that's in, you know, some of our earliest creeds. It's not saying, this text does not mean that Jesus went into hell after he was crucified and died. It means that he descended to us. He humbled himself and became a human being on this earth. And then after his humility was complete and his crucifixion and resurrection, he ascended back to the heavens is what this means. So verse 11, and he gave the apostles, he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which is which is which it is equipped, with which is is equipped, I'm sorry, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Father, um, we are amazed at your plan. We're amazed at Jesus. We're amazed that we have been brought into your family, into this covenant community. And we're amazed at the beauty of the plan. And so as we think about one portion of it, today we pray that our hearts and our eyes would be open to the truth of Jesus and the way that he, as the head of the church, has has um, provided for the church and given gifts that will help the body 
as this last verse said, build itself, grow in and of itself in love. Thank you for your love for us. We pray that it would be communicated to our hearts and our minds and that it might impact the ways that we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, be seated. Ephesians 4 is one of the four texts, New Testament texts, that talks about and gives list of spiritual gifts. Do you know where the others are? We've already looked at one, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, as we're looking at today, 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to be looking at in a couple of weeks, and then 1 Peter 4, which just is a very, very short list there. Um, Ephesians is one of those New Testament books that spends about half of the book talking about who we are in Christ. All the verbs in the first half of Ephesians are indicative. They're indicating something about Jesus and about who we are as believers in Jesus. Then the rest of the book is most of the verbs are imperatives. They're telling us how we're to live and it's always based on who we are in Christ. So, verse 7 uh, After, again, the the command to be one, to build unity or maintain the unity that is already ours in Christ, begins to talk about the gifts that the Lord has given. It will, no doubt, remind you of Romans 12 and the grace that is associated with the spiritual gifts that God gives for the building up of His body. In verse 8, Paul uh, ties Jesus' victory to Psalm 68, there's a little bit of a play on words here. Psalm 68 describes a triumphant king coming uh, into his place of reigning and all the gifts are brought to him. And now, here in Ephesians 4, Jesus is said to be giving gifts to his people. Don't make too much of that because truly (laughs) the Old Testament kings would receive the gifts and then they would give them out to the the leaders of the the different armies uh, that the king had. But here... The emphasis that Jesus, after his triumphant victory, he's conquered the enemy through the cross and the resurrection. He is giving gifts to members of his family. The cross of Jesus that we sang about this morning uh, seemed to be such a horrible defeat for Jesus. The enemy had won completely. And yet it was turned into the greatest triumph with Jesus purchasing eternal life. For all who will believe in him. His humility and his acceptance of the cross is the model for everyone who follows him. The way of the king is the way of the cross, which is the way of the disciple. We are to follow Jesus and his way leads always to the cross. But one day we will reign victoriously in his glory. For now... Jesus has graciously given spiritual gifts to his followers who were organized, again, into local churches, local bodies. In verse 11, Paul begins to announce the spiritual gifts that God has given to the church. And he doesn't get very far. I mean, he only lists a handful. And, and, and this is in keeping with what we've already learned about spiritual gifts. That, that, that there's no one list that is comprehensive that lists all of the gifts. Uh, it, Instead, the gifts are mentioned to particular bodies with the particular needs or the emphasis that Paul was placing on the gifts and the ministry of the gifts in that particular body. And that would lead us to believe that, that 
the lists that we see in Scripture are not comprehensive. So if you look at one of these four lists and you say, well, wow, I thought this was my spiritual gift, but it's not listed here. For instance, you may have the spiritual gift of prayer. Everybody is called to pray, but some are called to pray at a higher level. It doesn't mean that God has passed you by. It just means that your particular gift is not listed. Uh, serving, giving, all, both of those are, are, are for everyone, and yet some are called to give and to serve at a higher level than others. So you may be called to pray, to believe, uh, or you may be gifted in a particular thing that is really important for uh, our church. It may have something to do with the Internet that, that you know they didn't know anything about in the first century. So every believer has a spiritual gift to be used for the good of the family. If Ephesians 4 is such an important passage in Scripture about the structure and function of the local church, it would follow that the gifts listed are pretty important. <clears throat> oh, they did fall down, didn't they? <laughs> we try to, you know, it's kind of like... Uh, those TV shows where they're talking and something different is running on the screen. You know, you're just bombarded with the. I actually was just reading about that yesterday. Joshua and the walls falling down. That's pretty cool. The walls of Jericho. What are the spiritual gifts that Jesus gave to the church in order to promote unity and maturity? They all have to do with teaching at some level. And even though there will almost always be more teachers in a church than those who are called to lead, all of the leaders will be teachers. Kind of like all effective leaders are good readers. Not all good readers are good leaders, but all effective good leaders, just about everyone I know, is a reader. Someone who is reading widely, not just in his own field of interest or expertise, but reading widely. So verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. That, that uh, article there, the, the definite article, it, it's significant in Greek. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. And, and what do you notice about that last gift? It's actually one gift described two ways. The shepherds and teachers. So apostles and prophets. Are there apostles and prophets today? If we had been working our way through Ephesians systematically, we would have already encountered Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. So then, and we've, we've already looked at this text in this study. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So, the church... Citizens of the kingdom, members of the household of God, a place in the family. If you have a place in the family, this family is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Think all the metaphors in this one um, 
text alone about who we are in Christ. In Him, you also were being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, there's no doubt that Paul, when Paul talks about the apostles and the prophets, first of all, when he's talking about the apostles, he's talking about those who were specifically commissioned by Jesus to take his word to the world and to establish (coughs) his church (coughs) in the world. Um, He was talking about the 12 apostles with Matthias replacing Judas. And he was talking about himself who had been directly commissioned by God. He had seen Jesus. In fact, I've just been thinking about this a lot lately. You know, when... When, when God gave the law to Moses, how did he give it to him? He spoke to him face to face, didn't he? The gospel was articulated best by the Apostle Paul. And I have all ideas that when Paul was in the uh, desert of Arabia for three years, we're told about in Galatians, that Jesus spoke face to face with Paul over time. And hammered it out. And that's why you read the book of Romans. It's an amazing treatment of the gospel. A logical progression of how God moved uh, in creation. And through man's fallenness. And then the redemption of Christ. And how in faith. And it all works together. So Paul was an apostle of the Lord. And, And that's who he's talking about. Those who had had direct communication With Jesus Christ. And who had been specifically and specially commissioned to give this word to the people. Prophets here would also have referred to those who have direct words from the Lord to the church before the scriptures were complete. Agabus in Acts 11, 13, somewhere along in there. And Antioch talked about prophesied a famine that would come in Jerusalem. So these prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. And it had never been said before. Um. There is every indication that after the apostles died, the church had been given all the revelation it will ever receive. We don't know that. from You can't go to any specific verse and say, after this, no more. But the early church understood it that way. And the church all through the ages has understood it that way. And one of the great theologians of early days, Tertullian, in the late 2nd, 3rd, early 3rd century... Uh, fell into a heresy called Montanism in which this group thought that the Spirit of God was doing a new thing and he was giving new revelation to the church. And the church condemned this man who, as far as I know, was the first one to use the term Trinity. And he was a great theologian. He told us things and and observer of the times. He was the one who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What has Jerusalem to do with Athens. All these things that Tertullian gave us. And yet he fell into this heresy of thinking. God is giving new revelation today. Now the church has accepted all along. That there is no new revelation. Everything we have is in the word. So it would be correct to say. That the apostles and prophets that are mentioned in Ephesians 4. Are no longer in play today. Now, having said that, there are people who function very much like apostles and prophets, especially in areas where the word is not very um, uh, prominent 
or maybe has never been heard. Places There are places all over the world where people have never heard Jesus. And when God moves into it, an area, he will use a man uh, often and sometimes a woman to establish uh, these churches in, in, in communities that have never heard the gospel before. And, and, and these men especially function like apostles and prophets. It's almost like, but everything they say is from here. It's not from, I had a vision last night and the Lord told me to prophesy this to you and then there's some new truth from Scripture. That's not going to happen anymore. The next two gifts are in abundant evidence today and thus are quite important to the health of the church. Evangelists are are those who are particularly gifted to powerfully articulate the gospel in the power of the Spirit and thereby help many come to Christ. Look, we're all called to evangelize. But again, some have the gift of evangelism. There are some of you who just dread to think about the day that you may have to share the gospel with somebody. You know, when you feel guilty and it's like, oh man, I'm so nervous to say that. And then there are others of you that would witness to the telephone pole out there. Ted McKinney would go, I'm surprised. Sometimes if you say, where's Ted? He's out there witnessing to the telephone pole. Every chance he gets to share the gospel. Thank God for those of you with the gift of evangelism who use your gift. Every one of us is here because God gave the gift of evangelism to the church. And there are people who constantly, we need you, if you have the gift of evangelism, to put that before us. I've been convicted about the need to talk much more about outreach and our responsibility to take the gospel to the world. And I don't have the gift of evangelism. I, I, I tell you this. Every opportunity I get to share the gospel, I do. And I try to weave it into conversations. I don't just say, uh, let me share what the Word of God says about this. You know, it's just trying to end the conversation and share the gospel with people. But it's not my gift. We need those of you who have that gift to remind us. We need to be doing outreach more individually than as a church. But even as a church, we can do things that are designed to let people hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's also given to the church shepherds or pastors and teachers. Those, again, those two designations are likely wrapped up in one gift. Pastor, teacher, or shepherd, teacher. There are some who are better shepherds than they are teachers. And some teachers who are not the greatest shepherds. But the Spirit usually blends the two. Because they go hand in hand. Those who are deep in the word have a heart for people, have a heart for communicating what they know to the rest of the body. If you believe that Scripture is God's very word to us, that Scripture is His primary means of communicating the ways that we are to relate to Him and live our lives in community, then teachers who handle the word hold an important position. I introduced myself at the beginning of the message as the teaching elder at Grace. But all the elders are required to be able to teach. (laughs) Sometimes I have thought like this, and this is just speculation. It's just me thinking about things. It's not necessarily biblical. But in the same way that God uses um, all the different gifts in the body, to uh, 
build the body up and, and, and all of the needs are met. Because some have the gift of giving, some have the gift of serving, some have the gift of, uh, of teaching, some have the gift of encouragement. God uses all of those gifts to build the body up. In the same way, it's kind of like some churches are blessed with an, an abundance of one particular gift. And, and perhaps that they're called to be that kind of a, a, a light in the greater community, the gospel-believing churches in the area. And if there's one gift that we have an abundance of, it's teaching. God has given us a lot of really gifted teachers. And all the elders in our body are gifted teachers. But there are gifted teachers well beyond the elder board in our body. And we have a responsibility to use that. In our community as well as in our church. That doesn't mean that all the elders are going to preach on Sunday morning, but they might occasionally. And, and some of them will be over the next several weeks. We've already got some scheduled to talk about the, the various parts of family life that we're going to be discussing in the next month or so. Uh, one of the primary functions of a Bible teacher is to be able to, in study, to discern between error and truth. Because you might have a gift of communicating well. But if you just read something, you say, oh, I like that. I'm going to communicate that. And then you just throw it out there. And you're not really trying to discern, is this correct? Is this incorrect? What's true? What's not true here? What do I need to be thinking about further than that? So one of the functions of a, of a Bible teacher is to be able to discern between error and truth. Furthermore... That's not up to one person. It's not up to just the teaching elder. God has designed that each church, singular, be led by elders, plural, Acts 14.23. Of all the elders meetings that we've had over the years, uh, and, and we've had quite a few of them, and several of you who are not currently on the elder board have been in some of those meetings, my favorites are the ones in which we just talk about Scripture. And we, we talk about Scripture in the ways that it relates to our church life and also in, in, in response to the culture and the things that are going to be brought to bear on us in the coming days uh, because of the way uh, culture is moving in our time. But I love it when we're just investigating Scripture. Uh, we did that this past Thursday night. You're going to see the fruit of our labor in the coming weeks. We've been thinking about several key areas of church life. And you're going to see the fruit of those labors in the coming weeks and months. It was some significant proposals and announcements that we'll be putting before you. How important is biblical teaching? Well, it seems that the Apostle Paul has put it at the top of the list in our text and is even more direct about the teaching gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 that we're going to be looking at in a few weeks. So to answer the question, how important is teaching? You need to only answer the question, how important is Scripture? But you may object. We all have the Holy Spirit, and my interpretation of Scripture is just as valid as your interpretation. I'm going to be addressing this very thoroughly in the home groups this week. In fact, I may put the, the notes to the leaders out later in the week. I want you to go to home group and discuss them 
and discuss this idea. My interpretation of Scripture is just as valid as yours. It's just as valid as John Calvin's. It's just as valid as this person, as that person through the years. I would agree that you have the Holy Spirit who leads you into all truth. And I would also acknowledge that there may be times that you would disagree with me, and you're right, and I'm wrong. I mean, that's entirely possible. But God has given teachers as a gift to the church in the wake of his great victory at Calvary and in the resurrection. As a teacher, I'm constantly learning. And in the same way that I hope my doctor is constantly learning new medical information and even changes the, changing the way that he practices medicine, you surely want the elders of this church learning and growing, don't you? Even to the point of saying, you know, we used to understand the text this particular text in this way. But further study and prayer and conversation has led us to understand it fuller now. You would want us to say that, wouldn't you? I mean, can you imagine anything worse than a pastor who realizes he's been wrong about something that he has taught over the years but refuses to acknowledge his discovery because of his pride or because the people of the church just won't let him? Say, ah, ah. You've taught us this way all these years and now this. You know, I, this is something, I, I guess I, I haven't actually even thought about this till just this second, which this crowd over here is saying, uh-oh, here we go. <clears throat> but you know what? Anybody who preaches from up here needs to preach with authority from the word. But you need to be careful about saying things that you that you're just not sure of. And, and this is another thing. It's going to be discussed in the home groups this week. The gospel is very simple. And it is profoundly complex and rich and deep. There's a lot. As you go through life. The gospel just gets broader and broader. And sometimes when you learn new things. Occasionally it means. Oh. Okay, I see that this emphasis wasn't right. And I hope you trust me enough that if indeed God helps me to understand that it does not take in any way away from the authority of God's word. It's not me that's authoritative. The only authority I have is in the word. But you want me telling you what I've learned. Same thing, the elders, we discuss things and it's like, wow, we're just learning in the moment, Ricky and I are going to be heading out first thing in the morning, uh, bright and actually dark and early. We're going to be heading to Orlando, Florida to go to a, a conference, the Gospel Coalition. It's the closest thing that we have to a denomination. Look it up online. In fact, I'm going to put it up on next, next week on the screen, thegospelcoalition.com or .org, I think it may be. But um, Tim Keller and, and John Piper and Kevin DeYoung and D.A. Carson. If you know anything about theology, these are big names. These are, these are guys who have studied far deeper than I have. And, and so I'm going to learn from them so that you can be blessed by that. In fact, you're sending me. You may not have known that, but you're sending me. It's part of the, part of the package. Ricky has to pay for himself. But, you know, next year maybe we'll. No, I'm just kidding. He is buying my dinner, though. Where is he? Where is the boy? Um, so, at any rate, we will 
be sitting under the feet of these guys. And one of the great moments for me was a couple of years ago. Those four that I just mentioned were having a, a, as a panel. It was a discussion. And they were talking about, did Jesus preach the kingdom and Paul preach the gospel? And, of course, they were saying, no, they preached the same thing. Yes. So don't try to make these guys different. They had different emphases at different times. And, and they were talking, and Tim Keller said, you know, I'm just now thinking about this. And I, was, I thought, wow, this is so awesome to watch him thinking out loud in front of us. And to, to get just a sense of the process of the ways that he processes Scripture. And, 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 and from which we benefit. So, why are the teaching gifts so important to the church? Once again, verses 11 and 14. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we no longer may be children Tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. See if you can think of what the main points are going to be next week. Look, sit with this text a little bit and just see if we're on the same page when I come back next Sunday morning. Because we are sinful and fallen men and women. We tend to be legalists or libertines at heart. Because we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And we need teachers to preach the gospel to us. Those who have been given the spiritual gift of teaching to preach the gospel in all of its richness, its depth, and its beauty. We need those gifted with evangelism to provoke us to fulfill the great commission, constantly turning our hearts and our energy toward outreach. And we need shepherds and teachers who are going to lead us to the gospel and point to Jesus. Talked a lot about the teachers this day. Listen, the teacher's responsibility is to magnify and exalt Jesus Christ, not themselves. I am far from the only person at Grace Community Church who is called and gifted to shepherd the flock and to teach God's word. In addition to our elders, our deacons and our home group leaders have significant roles as pastors. And most of them are teachers as well. In fact, there's no way that I can be the pastor, so to speak, to every one of you. Just no way. Our elders help with that, but even beyond that, the first point of contact is the home group. Each one of them are home group leaders, and several of our deacons are home group leaders, but as our church continues to grow and expand the need for home groups, there are going to be people who are not in those primary roles. And that's the place where you're going to have your needs ministered to, and someone is going to shepherd you, is in the home groups. All of those who work in children's and student ministry function as shepherds and teachers. Does not the, <coughs> the, the worship team lead us? Do they not shepherd us? Do they not teach us? Does David not teach us from the ways that he structures the songs? Have you paid attention 
to the flow of the songs. Sometimes I'll say, hey, David, can we change it up? And he says, I've got a reason. And he's right. He's shepherding us. He's taking us somewhere with the, with the way that the songs are, are, are structured. So as our church grows, there's going to be more and more demand on the elders' time. You know, if you don't see the elders doing a lot of other things around here, like, and, and you do often see them, um, like when chairs are being set up or torn down. I used to feel so guilty when I'm not being in the middle of it. But you know what you'll probably see when the chairs are being torn down or set up and tables and all of that? If I'm there, you know what you'll probably see? Me talking with somebody. That's my gift. That's my responsibility. More than it is the other. I don't mind serving. I, I was at TVR all those years. I, I can't tell you how important that is to me. But the elders of this church, you cannot believe the time that they put in. Really. I bet many of them serve this body apart from Sunday morning. Ten or more hours a week. It's amazing. Now, not every week by any means. Some of the elders are probably saying, oh, I don't. Maybe I'm not doing my job. No, that's not. Look, but they, you can't believe. And, 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 and the emotional toll that is taken. Some of the things that we have to deal with. Rem, so, so as our church grows, there's going to be more and more demand on the elders' time. But the greater need will be for them to dive deeper and deeper into the word and in prayer. Remember Jesus' commission to Peter for pastoral service that we read last week in John 21? Feed my sheep. Remember what the response was when, when the people came to him and elders and said, Look, our widows are not being taken care of. He says, We cannot leave the ministry of the word and prayer. Appoint people to handle that. God has given us a very special gift. And I recognize they were apostles. and That's different from us, but the pattern is there. When I first came to Grace, someone asked me what I thought my primary responsibility was as a pastor. And then the person gave me two options. You think it's preaching or visiting members of the congregation? My response was, I think what I do on Sunday morning is the most important responsibility that I have. And um, the person gently disagreed with me and that was fine he or she thought that visiting the congregation was as or more important and and look if i don't remember who that was i think it was a lady if you're here this morning and that was you i'm so sorry for not using permission uh getting your permission before i use that i don't think the person is still here um and i acknowledge that the more you know about the congregation and the more that the congregation knows you the more effective the message will be on Sunday morning. To a point. When the work of the ministry so encroaches on the time of the person who is called and equipped to equip the congregation for the work of ministry, um, something is wrong. When the work of the ministry for which the congregation is to be equipped 
is so consuming that it takes the place of the study and quiet reflection necessary to deliver the message on Sunday morning, then the church is not functioning according to the way that God structured it. This is not really easy for me to preach, by the way, as you can imagine, but it's important. The job of the elders is to teach and pray and protect the flock against heresy. This is especially true for teaching elders. I want to close this morning with a reading from Eugene Peterson's book. When I say extensive reading, it's not going to be that long. I'm a little late getting going this morning, so um, in my defense, if we're out just a little bit later. Uh, And this book is The Contemplative Pastor. Now, if the author's name sounds familiar, it's because this is the man who gave us the message, which is stunningly good in some places and stunningly not in other uh, places. It's a sort of a paraphrase of Scripture. In this particular outstanding book, The Contemplative Pastor, written to teachers of the church, particularly the teaching elders, Peterson encourages pastors to make reading and study and prayer and quiet reflection their chief pursuit. I'm going to say not pursuits. Because that is the ministry to which they have been called. It's the gift that God has given to the church. Someone needs to do it. Someone needs to read broadly, far afield of just his own particular ministry because it all impacts us as believers in the world. Settle in, as I read several paragraphs from the contemplative pastor. In Herman Melville's book, Moby Dick, there is a turbulent scene in which a whaleboat scuds across a frothing ocean in pursuit of the great white whale, Moby Dick. The sailors are laboring fiercely, every muscle taut, all attention and energy concentrated on the task. The cosmic conflict between good and evil is joined. Chaotic sea and demonic sea monster versus the morally outraged man, Captain Ahab. In this boat, however, there is one man who does nothing. He doesn't hold an oar. He doesn't perspire. He doesn't shout. He is languid in the crash and the cursing. This man is the harpooner, quiet and poised, waiting. And then this sentence, to ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet out of idleness and not out of toil. Anybody ever read Moby Dick? Is there anybody that's ever read the whole thing, Moby Dick? Several of you. you, These are the people to watch out for. They're weird. Uh, This book... This book is, no, it's really, it is great literature. But I mean, the man writes a whole chapter on the ropes, you know, in a boat. It's like, it, and Linda had it as her goal when she was sick with the, with the brain tumor to read Moby Dick. And look, it became a family joke because she would lose her place and she would start over. Of all books, Moby Dick, you know, she would like go back. She'd be reading say, hey, I thought you were 100 pages ahead of that. And she'd say, oh, no, you know, and just, just be reading. But that shows you the kind of interest in them and the mind that she had. But, but it, Peterson says, and then this sentence, to ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet out of idleness and not out of toil.
Melville's sentence is, this, is a text to set alongside the psalmist. Be still and know that I am God, Psalm 46.10. And alongside Isaiah's, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength, Isaiah 30.15. Pastors know there is something radically wrong with the world. We are also engaged in doing something about it. The stimulus of conscience, the memory of ancient outrage, and the challenge of biblical man involve us in the anarchic sea that is the world. The white whale, symbol of evil, and the crippled captain, personification of violated righteousness, are joined in battle. History is a novel of spiritual conflict. In such world, noise is inevitable, and immense energy is expended. But if there's no harpooner in the boat, there will be no proper finish to the chase. Or if the harpooner is exhausted, having abandoned his assignment and become an oarsman, he will not be ready and accurate when it is time to throw his javelin. Somehow it always seems more compelling to assume the work of the oarsman, laboring mightily in a moral cause, throwing energy into a fray we know has immortal consequence. And it always seems more dramatic to take on the outrage of a Captain Ahab, obsessed with a vengeance, a vision of vengeance and retaliation, brooding over the ancient injury done by the enemy. There is, though, some other important work to do. Someone must throw the dart. Some must be harpooners. The metaphors Jesus used for the life of ministry are frequently images of the single, the small, and the quiet, which have effects far in excess of their appearance. Salt, leaven, seed. Our culture publicizes the opposite emphasis. The big, the multitudinous, the noisy. It is then a strategic necessity that pastors deliberately ally themselves with the quiet, poised harpooners and not leap frenzied to the oars. There is far more need that we develop the skills of the harpooner than the muscles of the oarsman. I just happen to have those muscles, by the way. You know that's a joke if you've seen me in a short sleeve shirt. It is far more biblical to learn quietness and attentiveness before God than to be overtaken by what John Oman named the twin perils of ministry, flurry and worry. For flurry dissipates energy and worry constipates it. And that's the only time you'll ever hear me use that word unless I say it by accident, which is entirely possible, you know. That is a church growth model here. Come and see what he'll say this week. End of quote. And you know what? I want to end the message right here. Without saying anything for you to apply. Except to pray for the leaders of our church who are prime targets for Satan. But closing without application is, is kind of the point, isn't it? Of what we've learned today. This book is the gospel. And the gospel is life to us in Jesus Christ. Pray for those who seek to exalt him through the teaching of the word. Let's pray.
Well, Father, um, this is indeed for any of us to speak for you. It's no small thing. In fact, it is well beyond our ability, our audacity. If it's not, it should be to speak for you. And yet, in your sovereign plan, you have chosen leaders who are shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And to teach in such a way that we will grow up into maturity as believers and not be distracted or even led down a road of destruction by false doctrine. So, Father, I just want to pray for all of the elders who indeed are targets of Satan, who indeed expend a great deal of energy in study and prayer in addition to all their other responsibilities that they have. I pray that you would uh, help us as leaders, Father, to recognize that we are deeply accountable to all those in our body and to you even more so, far more so. So Lord, thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ that, that not only is provides life for us along with the resurrection of Jesus, but also is our model for discipleship, our model for ministry. Jesus' name.